Okay, but if you do, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We've been in a little series, it's our last installment today, a little series we're calling Life Together, borrowing from famous little book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, because we want to re-envision ourselves from God's Word about life together, community together, fellowship together, and it's vital, vital importance for us. We, we saw from Ephesians 4 the, the nature of the church. We saw last week from Romans 12 how we're called to love and to, and to service. And, and today, today we're really going to get a picture. Well, I, th- I think of how crucial this, this thing called fellowship really is. We want to see really how the stakes are very high when it comes to walking together enjoying life together in community. Would you follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. God's Word tells us the following. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. May God use His Word to strengthen us and encourage us this morning. Jerry Bridges, in his outstanding book, The Discipline of Grace, which I highly recommend, The Discipline of Grace, in it, Jerry Bridges writes about the the famous disaster of the sinking of the Titanic. He writes as follows, On April 10, 1912, the steamship Titanic set sail on its maiden voyage from Southampton, England, to New York City. The largest passenger ship in the world, it was, at at the time, also hoped to be the fastest. The captain, in an effort to, to break the transatlantic speed record, had the engines going full speed. Two days out of New York, and well on its way to breaking the record, of course, the Titanic collided with an iceberg and quickly became the world's greatest maritime disaster. Mr. Bridges writes, despite the fact, despite the fact that the captain knew they were sailing directly into an area of dangerous ice packs, no special precautions were taken. And the warnings given from other ships were ignored. Such an indifferent Attitude, he says, such an indifferent attitude to this dangerous hazard 
seems to us today to be the height of folly and irresponsibility. This indifferent attitude to known dangers, ignoring warnings, seems to us the height of folly, right? The height of irresponsibility. But then he writes, this is the same attitude with which many believers approach the Christian life. I think he's right. I think he's right that there can be known dangers that we don't pay attention to. We don't heed properly. There can be warnings like God gives in this passage. Warnings that we politely ignore and can too easily suffer consequences. There's a danger in this passage, a danger that every marriage faces and needs help with. There's a danger in this passage that every, every parent encounters and needs assistance with. There's a danger we find in God's word here that every single adult here should be aware of and alert to and benefiting from help. A danger every teenager, every young person experiences well. Friend, there's a danger here. There's a danger here we must be alert to. And, and there is help. There is help offered from God for that danger we face. And I want to see with you both this morning. I want to see the danger. I want to see the iceberg we need to be aware of. And I want to see with you, and I hope you're encouraged by the help the significant help God reveals to us here. So let's see both. First, let's see what I would call the danger within. First, let's see our danger within. Now, I, I am not going to give um, fair treatment to all the verses we read. I'm sorry. I want to zero in on two specific verses because I do have an agenda I'm coming with as we're talking about small groups. I want to zero in on verses 12 and 13, but here's the context. The context is this. This letter, letter was written to Jewish Christians, it seems, who are experiencing some persecution, some degree of suffering for following Jesus. And because of that, some are tempted to renounce their faith in Jesus and revert back to a kind of uh, non-Christian Judaism. So in the verses we read, the author, he quotes to them Psalm 95. And that psalm recalls a real crisis situation in the Old Testament, a crisis of unbelief. And now that situation of unbelief, referenced in that psalm, is being applied to their circumstance. Track with me? You've got a few different things going on. It's a situation of unbelief way back here, referenced in Psalm 95. That's now being applied to their circumstance and linked to their present situation as he then applies it in verse 12, saying, notice verse 12, take care, brothers. It's a very solemn warning. It's really what the captain of the Titanic lacked, isn't it? Taking care. Being alert to dangers. Use extreme caution, he's saying. Take care, why? Lest, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you 
to fall away from the living God. I, I told you the stakes were high. I just want to, I want to comment in a couple ways before we proceed. First, I want to say if you're here and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. You're in the right place in case you were concerned. It's good to have you with us. I'm so glad you've joined us. I want you to notice how God views unbelief. Notice how God views unbelief here. He calls it evil. Not believing on Jesus Christ is not a neutral thing. He's saying it's, it's evil. It's, it's not you know, intellectual integrity to deny faith in Jesus Christ. He says, no, this has a moral component. I find it evil in my sight. But here's good news. The rest of this wonderful letter, if you read it, tells you that God has done something amazing for you to rescue us to rescue you and me from what we've done that is evil in his sight. He sent his only son, God in the flesh, perfect God and perfect man to live a perfect life. And then he gave his life on a Roman cross to receive the the punishment that you and I deserve for what we've done that is evil in God's sight. Jesus received that punishment. He atoned or he paid for our sins in full and then he rose from the dead. That's what we celebrated Easter time. The, the tomb being empty. He rose from the dead showing emphatically his payment is enough. You know, his debit card carries this transaction. It's good enough to take care of your sins and mine if you trust in him, if you turn to Christ. If you renounce what is evil in his sight and you trust him and you rely on what Christ has done for you. And I just want to urge you as you listen to me today, I'm going to focus on those who have believed. I'm going to focus on the need for community, but I don't want to leave you out. Okay, you're not left out. You, you should be hearing, please hear how much we need Jesus, how much you need Jesus, and how he holds out to you eternal life and forgiveness of your sins right now. I would urge you to come to him believing that's one thing I wanted to say. Secondly, I want to notice with you, this is a warning given, however, to professing Christians. He says, take care, brothers. He didn't say, take care, you pagans. <laughs> he says, take care, brothers. This is a warning to professing Christians. And of course, people debate about why. I believe he is concerned about the issue of of apostasy, and we covered this a while back, apostasy, that's when, that's when someone is a professing believer in Jesus, they've probably been baptized, they're coming to a church, they are, maybe they've joined a ministry team, maybe they're going to a small group, but then at some point in their lives, they they renounced their faith in Christ. They said, oh, I was all wrong about that. They turned their back on Jesus, turned their back on the church, and they walk away. That's apostasy. I was professing Christ. I looked like a believer. I gave every appearance of being a believer, and then I walked away and renounced Christ. He's concerned about that happening for them. He doesn't want that to happen to them. He's writing so that they would be warned against that. And tells them not to have, quote, a sinful, unbelieving heart, right? A sinful, 
unbelieving hearts. You might ask, okay, I get it, Tab. The stakes are high. What, what is it that tempts me to this sinful, unbelieving heart? I don't want to get there. Well, verse 13 provides the answer. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another, come back to that, as long as it is called today, quoting Psalm 95, notice the purpose clause, that none of you, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So here's the portion of the iceberg that is below the surface of the water. The deceitfulness of sin, do you see that? Here's the danger within. The deceitfulness of sin, what you might call indwelling sin, I think particularly, or or remaining sin that can deceive us. And when we get deceived, we get hardened at heart. Now you might ask here, Tab, wait a minute, wait a minute. As a believer in Jesus, I am a new creation in Christ. I'm a new creature in Christ. So why are you saying I have sin remaining within? Seems like such a downer. And I would say, first of all, you're right. You are new. If you are a genuine believer in Christ, you are genuinely new. Every genuine believer has been born again. They are spiritually alive. They've been united to the risen Christ. They are in union with Christ. They are alive with Christ to walk in newness of life. I love the picture of this in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series and the voyage of the dawn treader where the The bratty Eustace, have you read this? The bratty Eustace in his love for the gold and the riches has become a dragon. Do you remember that? And do you recall what he tries to do? He doesn't want to be a dragon. So he keeps trying to undragon himself. He takes a layer of dragon skin off. What's underneath? More dragon skin. Takes another layer off. What's underneath? More dragon skin. He takes layer after layer. He cannot undragon himself. That's kind of like what we are left to ourselves. But then Aslan, representing our Lord, comes and he takes his great claws, right? He, he, I think it did hurt a bit. He reaches in and he pulls that dragon nature off of Eustace and he's a boy again. This is what Jesus does for us. Only Jesus Christ can undragon us. He makes us genuinely new friends. If you are in Christ, if you're a genuine believer, you are truly new. But you're not entirely new. I I hope that's not a newsflash for you. Like, you're shocked by this, you know? You are genuinely new, but you're... Friend, you're not entirely new. We have an inbred propensity to rebel. And that remains, even after we've been undragoned. That's what I'm calling remaining sin or indwelling sin. This inbred propensity to rebel that remains alive and kicking in the life, even of a genuine believer. You see, the genuine believer, for them, the power of sin is broken, right? You're no longer its slave. The penalty of sin has been paid. But the presence of sin remains. Those three P's are helpful to keep in mind. Power of sin is broken. You're no longer its slave. Penalty for sin has been paid in full, but the 
the presence of sin remains. And so we can apply this, friends. We can be warned by this here, this deceitfulness of sin. Remaining sin within the believer wants to deceive you. It, it lies to you. That's how the iceberg works. It brings alluring, mouth-watering lies. It's kind of like a hook, a fishing hook, with some nice juicy bait on it. And it looks so yummy. You want to bite into that bait, but it's a trick. It's a lie. It's a hook. It's deception. And we find our hearts hardened. That's the author's concern. That's what God is warning us against. It's kind of like, to use another literature analogy, you may have remembered from high school reading The Odyssey, right, by Homer. The main character, Odysseus, and his fellow sailors encounter an island where there are sirens, right? Beautiful maidens. And what do they sing? You probably, if you've been to Starbucks, you know, right? You've, you've been to Starbucks. They sing siren songs. Why do they do that? They want to sing these tantalizing siren songs to passing sailors to tempt them to come closer and crash their ship on the rocks. It's a pretty good picture of what's being described here. Sin within sings to you siren songs. It says, come closer. Oh, it's going to be so good. Come closer. It'd be great to have you closer. And then you crash on the rocks of unbelief. It's the lie that promises satisfaction. The siren song of being truly satisfied. This will really make you feel good forever. It's the siren song of of a joy and a delight that you think, I I can't get that in Christ. And it's a lie. For For these early Christians, the siren song seems to be to believe the lie that the easy life was the way to go. And I'm sure I've not faced persecution I'm sure that's very hard and very tempting, but that that was kind of the bait. And if we just jettison Jesus, the persecution will stop. Life will be better. And it was a, a lie. Now, we're not facing the same temptation, but maybe we hear the siren song in covetousness. You see a, a home you'd really like to have. If I had that house... Oh, I'd be satisfied. I I have been thinking about, not for any good reason at all, I'd I'd like to get a different car. Now, I don't think that's wrong in itself, but I have no reason for that. And I, I even went on Auto Trader to find a different used car for which I have no reason to have. As if that would truly satisfy me. I'm not against having a different car. But covetousness sings this song to us. And it is a lie. Because our only true satisfaction is in Christ. Or it can be the siren song of of bitterness and anger. It tells us that if we just keep tearing our husbands down, or just keep tearing our wives down, or just keep tearing our friends down with our words, or even just mentally in our, our thoughts, we'll feel good about ourselves. 
It's, it's spiritual environmentalism, as I've heard it called. Spiritual environmentalism. Focusing on the sin in our environment instead of the sin within us. Right? It's my wife's fault that I sinned in anger. It's, she made me do it. It's bitterness. It's, it's anger. It's rage. It's malice that, that baits us into unbelief. Or maybe it's the siren song of lust. It sings to you about someone other than your spouse and it says to you, if I, if I was married to him, or if I was married to her, then, wow, then life would be good and it's a lie. God in his wisdom has brought you the spouse that would be right for you. Or maybe you hear this siren song of thinking about sexuality outside of marriage or you hear the siren song of pornography pornography says here is real satisfaction and it takes no work for you you don't have to invest in a relationship it's so easy it'll be better and it's a lie it's just crashing you on the rocks i want to i want to just i want to take the iceberg here seriously and just ask you to consider where Where have you been hearing the siren song in your life recently? Where's that for you? Maybe maybe just this week, past couple weeks. What's the main siren song you're hearing from sin within? It's important we're aware of that. Odysseus, with his men, he, he put his, uh, put wax in his men's ears to, to tune out the siren songs. That's what we want to do together and not crash on, on the rocks of unbelief. You see this passage, doesn't it? It has a, a sobering effect. It's, it's icebergs alert, icebergs ahead, take care, watch out. And if we see that, we're positioned for help. If we see there's danger within, we can get help from without. So see secondly, secondly with me our help here, our help from without, from outside of us. So I hope, I hope you're asking right now, okay Tab, God's word has my attention, icebergs in the water, what's the antidote here? What's the remedy to this significant, potentially serious situation, the deceiving, hardening effects of sin. Well, look at verse 13 again, please. It tells us, here's the remedy, but exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I, I do believe verse 13 is one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture about our need for other people. I, I don't know of a more poignant verse than that one. You might have one that comes to mind. None, none come to mind that are more poignant. God has just said, Take care against a sinful, unbelieving heart. And you you get a sinful, unbelieving heart by being deceived by, hardened by, by sin. So how do you counteract this? How do you counteract the lying, 
hardening effects of sin. God says, exhort each other. Does that surprise you? It surprises me. He says, here's the remedy. Help each other. Exhort each other. Encourage each other. Cheer each other on. So where does God intend for help to come to his people? Well, in this passage, it's through his people. Through those you're seated around right now. Isn't that amazing? This verse, this verse almost functions, it almost functions like a promise, doesn't it? It's almost like a promise. It's a promise, in effect, that as we are exhorted by others, as we position ourselves to be encouraged and and, and helped and exhorted, we get help from God and we persevere. We We are protected from these lying, deceiving effects of sin. Do you see that? We need God's word in the fight of faith, to be sure. You need scripture in the fight for faith. That's huge. You need, you need prayer. You need the power of the Holy Spirit as you pray and you say, fill me, please, Spirit of God, help me tune out these siren songs. But friends, you need his people as well. How, how often do we think about our need for other people and community? that we might persevere. But that's what this is saying. Through community, the help of the people around you, and I'm going to argue, especially in a small group, help from God comes to counteract the deceiving effects of sin. It's kind of like this. I I have contact lenses in, but I have terrible vision. I have, last time I was told, I have 2400 vision. So if you had perfect vision, if you're 20-20, things you can see at 400 feet away, I have to get 20 feet away to see them. But that's not my only vision problem anymore. I, I'm almost, I turn 50 in a few weeks. I'm officially, yeah, I'm officially middle-aged, I think. And I, I, yeah, I know. I, I think, I think um, what, what do those groans mean? What did that mean? <laughs> Depends on who it's coming from, doesn't it? Yeah. I think I may have told this story before, but a couple years ago, I had an eye exam, and the, the lady, the technician, she put this card close to me. Now, I'm supposed to be nearsighted, right? I'm nearsighted. She put a card close to me and said, would you read the bottom line? I said, no problem. It's J-E-S-K-R. She let out a laugh and said, those are numbers. I'm not making this up. I don't think they should laugh at you. I think that's like medical malpractice somehow. They should not be making fun of you in the office. Your eyes are terrible. What does that mean? It means I cannot see far away. I cannot see close up. And that's what this is like. I don't see my own life clearly. You don't see your own life clearly. Are you aware of that? I don't see my own role as a husband, 2020. I don't see my role as a parent, 2020. I don't see my life as a Christian with 2020 vision. And, and friend, neither do you. 
But what's happening here is when someone comes alongside with whom you love, they love you, you're doing life together, etc., and they exhort you about something, they help you about something, it's like you're putting some contact lenses in and suddenly you see better. You get some clarity. And your heart is not as deceived. I, I remember, and I may have told, I, I forget what stories I've told, you know that. But I remember vividly a time when this was driven home to me, and it was, it was almost 20 years ago. Pretty newly married. We had recently moved to the Chicago area with a couple good friends, one of whom was named Brian. And Brian and I would meet a couple times a month for fellowship, care, accountability, let's call it. And we're at a Starbucks. I remember the chairs we were sitting in. I remember the pattern on those chairs, this kind of polka dot pattern. When Brian, this kind friend, he said to me, Tab, can I, can I say something to you? Sure, sure, Brian. When I give you some input or feedback, I'm never sure how you're going to respond. And what he was saying in his kind way was, you're proud a lot, Tab. And it was like someone was turning on the dimmer switch. Because I'd been proud for a long time, but I didn't realize how that was playing out very clearly. I didn't realize that when people are saying things to me, maybe correcting me or helping me, I can be prickly, to put it nicely. Sinfully responding. And it was like, whoa. But it's not just a long time ago when I've experienced this. I just, just past couple weeks, I, I had an incident where Sung and one of our kids went to our family doctor. I wasn't there. Sung related the incident later on. And I think there was some miscommunication between the doctor and the nurse, what have you. I, I took up an offense for how something was handled. I was sinfully angry. I know that not all anger is sinful, but mine was. <laughs> I was offended. I was self-righteous. I was composing emails to my doctor in my head that would soon translate to my computer. Sung spoke to me about this and said, Honey, I think, I think you're getting offended. And I knew she was right, but I, I have to be honest with you, at the moment I felt I didn't care that much. I didn't want to repent yet. A day or two went by, and I, I, I did have this thought. I thought, I... I I should ask my friend Van Shalen, who's, who's a physician. And I happened to be talking with Van and Susan last Sunday, and so I said, can I, can I take you in a scenario? Can you just give me your feedback? And I did, and they were gracious and kind with me and understanding, which, which is very helpful when someone understands, yep, that was a temptation, and there may have been a problem, yes, and you probably should talk to your doctor, but... But I also appreciate them saying, Tab, it's just so easy for that to happen. It's, so, it's just so easy that, that, yeah, understand your concern, but it's easy to have happen. And, and it was like my contact lenses got put back in a bit. 
and Van kindly prayed for me. I went home saying, Sung, I'm not as offended. Do you see how this works? You need scripture. You, You need prayer, dependence on the Holy Spirit. But friends, God uses his people. Amen? He uses his people. Please don't hear this and think, you know what, I'm doing pretty well. I've in effect outgrown my need for other people. You don't want to think that way, friend. Icebergs are still in the water, okay? Sin never takes a vacation. Not until we die and are are glorified is it fully eradicated. This is a crucial passage to help us see the danger within and the help from without. And it's a very helpful passage for seeing why we have small groups. Now, it's, it's not the totality of why, you can refer to last week's sermon or two weeks ago. It's a bigger picture here, but, but this is a pretty big piece. I'm not saying this kind of fellowship only happens in a small group. I, I enjoyed that with Van and Susan last Sunday, right here. I think this kind of fellowship should happen as, as a norm between married couples and between teenagers and their parents and, and friends, single Adults, but home groups, small groups are how we, we structure for this to happen as a community of, of believers. I like, I like how Ray Ortland has put it. He said, he said, in every church, we need a place, we need a context where three things come together. Gospel, or good news, plus safety, plus time. I think that's really helpful. In every church, we need a context where three things come together regularly. Three things intersect for us. The good news of Jesus, safety, and time. Here's what he said. The gospel, of course, is the good news we've talked about. The finished work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection brings us the power of the Holy Spirit for change. Yes, indeed. Ortland says we need multiple exposures to that gospel. Constant immersion, wave upon wave of grace. Plus, safety. A non-accusing environment. A place where there, there isn't condescension. That's what I appreciate about Van and Susan helping me last week. There wasn't condescension. There wasn't, you idiot. <laughs> Not that they would say that to me, but I, I might be tempted to say that to myself. No condescension, no, no embarrassing anyone, no, no one saying, I can't struggle, I can't believe you struggle that way. I, I don't struggle that way. No, no, people not doing that. There's respect, there's understanding. And time, gospel plus safety plus time. A place where he said, there is an urgency, there is an urgency, but not a hurry Because people change over time. No one changes quickly. Do you? So we need a place like that where there's good news in fortifying our souls, being applied to our daily lives. A place where there's safety, where where you know you can share real life. You're You're not living with this veneer of Christianity, putting on a good face. How are things going? Fine, how are you? Fine, how are you? 
a place where there is safety for real life friends and a place where you can go regularly, consistently for time. And that's how we structure, why we structure for these small groups. I think in our home groups, we want them to have gospel plus safety plus time. So you can get help from God through His people. Now, I know you can hear all this and say, that's nice, Tab. But no one is exhorting me like that. Looks good on paper, but no one's doing that for me. No one is caring for me like that. And you, you have to realize, I, I'm not trying to be unkind, you have to realize, though, no one can read your mind about where you need to be exhorted. No one can read your mind, look into your soul and know, oh, right there, they need encouragement. I'll bring that today. You have to open those things up. You have to kind of crack the egg. You have to lift the hood of your car and let people look inside a little bit. You have to invite that. I had to go to Van and Susan and say, can, can I invite you into something? They wouldn't have known. So you, you open up your temptations. You open up your challenges. You open up your joys as well. And, and where you're burdened, where you're weighed down, where you're tempted, where you're sinning, that others might care for you. Now, there is an article that I emailed to you, and it's also stuck in your announcements. And if you don't mind pulling that out, I can't find my copy. But it says, eight ways to miss the point of small group. Do you see that? You didn't get one. I think there's some in the back as well. Eight ways to miss the point of small group. Now notice on the second side, number six. The whole thing is real good. Notice number six. Here's a way to miss the point of small group. Don't share honestly. Number six. You see that? If you don't share honestly, you miss the point of your small group. Notice what, he, notice what the writer says. Update each other about life, but don't let the sharing get too messy. <laughs> it's kind of tongue-in-cheek here. Avoid talk of doubt and struggles, especially confession of sin, or anything that could make someone look weak in front of the group. Share, but don't share too much. Isn't that what we can do? I'll share, but I'm, I'm not going to share too much. And if you do that, friends, if that's your approach, you will miss the point, one of the points, of your small group. I just want to bring this down to real life for us. Think about this past ministry year. Think about your participation in a small group, if you were part of one. How, friend, how consistently... Did you lift the hood for people? I mean, how consistently did you invite others into real life in your marriage? And not the veneer, not we're fine, we're good, when you're in the middle of a conflict. I had some, we've had some of our best fellowship. We've had our small group meeting while Sung and I are working out a conflict. It's very helpful and humbling, which I think is the point. But what, how, how consistently did you do that? Maybe you're having a challenge in, in your parenting. 
Not to gossip about your kids, but did you, did you get some care? Or just in your own personal life, maybe you're a single adult here. How consistently did you say, friends, can I share with you a struggle? I need, I need some exhorting so that I keep persevering. So we want to build. We want to build our fellowship around the Word of God. Yes, we accented that last year. But it's not a Bible, but a Bible study per se. Our groups are there to, to apply God's Word as, it, as it's preached. But we always want there to be this context for gospel and, and safety and time for real life to be talked about and for you to be cared for right, right where you need it, friend. Don't, don't wait for the person to ask just the right question. Bring it to them. They care about you. They want to help you. For all of us, like, like the Titanic, there are dangers we face that are easy to neglect. I hope you're hearing there is wonderful help offered to you by God. Wonderful help. Help from His Word. Help by His Spirit as you pray and wonderful help from the living God flowing, friends, flowing through His people. So please consider this. Just a few points to take away. What's the main thing you really could use help with right now? What's the main thing? Who are you going to talk with? Maybe today you could do that. What's the main thing you need help with? And with whom will you talk with and say, could you exhort me here? Could you pray for me? And then third, consider a small group. Consider signing up for a small group. So you get a context regularly for gospel and safety and time. And notice the reason why ultimately in verse 14. Here's the ultimate reason why. For we have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's what we want to do, right? We want to hold our confidence in Jesus, our risen, reigning Savior, confident to the very end until we see Him face to face. We want to know and be assured and walk with Him knowing that we are indeed sharing in Christ. God, friends, wants to meet you to that end with His powerful, sustaining grace that His Son has purchased for you. And so that's where we're going to end. We're going to assure our souls that we are in Christ by another means of grace, the Lord's Supper.